one. Welcome to another episode of the High Octane Hour. I'm Kuba. I'm James. And with us today, we have the king of rock and rumble, Elvis Sinisic of King's Academy and UFC fame. He also hosts on UFC Fight Week and he just picked up a brand new UFC gym down in... um, MacArthur Square. MacArthur Square. MacArthur Square. Where is that? Is that near the airport? It's in Campbelltown. Oh, okay. It's in the MacArthur Square shopping center in Campbelltown. Yeah. Well, since you've, you've done, since you've done the intro, look, just very quickly, it's good to be the king. You know, I'm a high-octane individual, so it's good to be on the high-octane hour. Fuck yes. uh, Looking forward to the chat. Um, at the moment, I'm in a sauna, uh, just shy of 100 degrees, so uh, forgive me if I'm uh, a little bit slow on the uptake occasionally. Um, it's my daily sauna. Um, and then on weekends, I'll kind of mix it in with an ice bath. But today, we're here, high-octane time, talking high-octane to- topics. So it, it should be good fun. Uh, as Cooper said, uh, you know, it was first Australian to fight in the UFC and numerous other uh, accolades over the years. I've been around for a long time. Uh, absolutely love the industry. I'm a big part of the community um, in where I am at the moment, and I'm always looking for ways that I can uh, help those around me. So hopefully we can get some really good information out to the people listening today. Thanks, Elvis. It's good to have you on. Elvis, is that a, is that a regular sauna or have you got the infrared infrared rays shining through there? Well, you, you're going to get me um, talking the science stuff. No, it's a traditional Finnish sauna, so it's a, your hot rock sauna. Um, when you look at all the uh, anti-aging studies and all the um, longevity and mortality-based studies, particularly those um, um, up from Europe, Finland and the like, they're all done in Finnish saunas or your traditional rock sauna. Um, even though um, infrared saunas are very good, um, I prefer your standard one. Um, your infrared sauna it heats from the inside out, so they use near, mid and far infrared to heat the core, and then you warm from the inside out. Your traditional um, finish or rock sauna or steam sauna, whatever you want to call it, heats from the outside in. They tend to get hotter, so you develop a much stronger sweat in these sort of saunas. What you'll see in some of the newer saunas like a clear light, we actually have a clear light infrared uh, at MacArthur Square, um, is they will have your infrared panels in there, but at the front of the sauna they also have a radiant heater, so they're doing a combination of both heating the air and heating the object. Um, the reason I like the, the traditional sauna is because I like to work it with my ice bath sauna, keep it very simple, heat shock proteins, your cold therapy, that sort of stuff. And then I have separate um, a near uh, a, a infrared and fire, uh, near infrared uh, EMR, a couple of the devices. I have a UV device. Um, and a few other things. So I kind of like to work my therapies individually, whereas some of the um, infrared saunas will kind of combine several um, from near, mid, and far infrared to try and give you a more of a holistic workout. But the problem is with those, the level of um, your wavelength is going to be a lot lower in those sort of saunas, whereas when you get a specific device, you can actually kind of pump it up and you can get a lot more treatment in a much shorter uh, time frame. So, when you talk about um, uh, an individual device, what do you mean by that? You're talking about like a handheld sort of thing. No, I've got um, I've got a couple of devices there. One's uh, like a 
it's uh, like the size of uh, like a couple of uh, it's about the size of a besser brick. So it's quite a large device, and it's one I hang from the ceiling. So it's over my bed, so I can sit under it. It does um, infrared. It's an what's known as an EMR firestorm. Um, it has Sounds red dangerous. and near near infrared. Um, very powerful, perfect. So you can I've got it on a on chain, so I can adjust the height. So I get a general treatment, or if I want to lower it down, I can do a targeted treatment. I also have one which is um, the Inferno. This is more traditionally what people would be f- familiar with as infrared panels. So it's a panel about, you know, a meter high by about 30 centimeters wide. It's got a whole bunch of infrared diodes on it. Um, the reason the, I like the EMR is on all their devices, they have what are called uh, COB or COB chips. So you, normally you have your diodes are like um, five amp. Uh, infrared diodes, and they, there's a limited amount of power you can kind of generate. When you get a cob chip, it's a, a collection of multiple diodes, so you can generate a lot more higher um, intensity in your in your wavelength, and you can also mix in several different wavelengths at once, so you get a, a much better, much more higher dose um, response. So the Inferno has the cob chips down the center, so it's kind of designed for people because if you think about it, our spine, our internal organs, they all tend to um, be along our center line. So you want the most power down the center line where it's going to get the most effect. And then on the edges, you just have your regular um, infrared chips um, or LEDs, I should say, your, your regular infrared LEDs for your general sort of thing for skin and a little bit deeper and things like that. So the infrared light, does that... Um is that is it a is it a heat therapy or is it the actual light waves themselves? No, it's act, it's actually the light waves. So, so they penetrate was, your skin or your balls or something like that, or I don't know how it works. Yeah, you can again, you can do it for skin for your balls if you want to increase testosterone. You can do it into bone, into muscle, into soft tissue. So again, this is where I was talking about before. You have red light, which is visible light. Um, and red light tends to be very good for your general. It doesn't penetrate it deep. It's generally like your epidermal gets into your skin, your follicles, that sort of stuff. Very good for improving um, skin health and just general external well-being. You know, collagen and things like that, healing scars. Then you go into um, what's called near infrared. And again, it's all got to do with the um, the length of the the light waves. And so you go into near infrared, which is not visible to the human eye, and then you have your ranges, you know, 810, 830, 850, and they actually penetrate deeper past the skin and through the muscles. They actually get directly into your mitochondria um, because all your mitochondria have photocells, so they can actually produce, um, process light energy. Most people don't realize this. We're almost like plants, as in we have photocells, and, and the body can use it. Obviously, it works a little bit differently. We don't use photosynthesis, which is a shame because that's a really handy process. It's pretty efficient. But we do, but we do have uh, photocells in our mitochondria, which allows us to – that's how come you can shine it, as you said, on your balls and increase testosterone. You can shine it on scars and it will heal and things. And there, So there, your, your main what are called red light therapy. When you go into mid and far, mid and far uh, infrared, that's when you start generating heat. So the waves there, that's where, you know, you... The saunas and all that, yeah. Yeah. 
And then when you go the other way, you go into visible light, and then you start going into UV light, so UVA, UVB, UVC, and then all of that. Well, yes, you do. You don't want UVC because UVC can be damaging in excessive doses. UVC is what they actually use to disinfect stuff. So this is one of the things I actually purchased at the start of the pandemic. When I knew very little about it, I got some UVC lamps because it basically kills 99.999% of all bacteria and viruses. So any stuff I was bringing in the house, I was treating with a UVC lamp. Obviously, you don't want to be there while it's on because it, it can. it's not good for um, you don't want to be exposing it directly to people, but it's fine for putting it on packages and things like that. UVB is what we require for um, vitamin D production, so you need to get UVB. And UVA is generally what you kind of get a tan with, but they, they're suggesting that there are – I mean, if we already have – like vitamin D is not a, vi- uh, a vitamin, as I'm sure you're aware. It's a hormone. It gets referenced as a vitamin, but – it is actually a hormone in the body, and we produce it through our skin. So, again, this is why UVB is important because we need to get full skin exposure to the sun every day. And obviously, if you're not getting that, getting a, uh, a UVB or a UVA slash UVB device and doing um, short dosages each day is going to do things like improve testosterone, improve vitamin D production. But what they think is there could be a lot more other hormones or functions in the body that we're not aware of that are regulated by the different UV frequencies. So this is why it's important because one of the things, the studies I looked at very early on is a lot of depression can actually be resolved with regulated sun exposure. Mm. So what they found is people during tended to have higher depression rates during winter and it was correlating with your sun exposure, obviously winter, you're indoors more, you get more artificial light, you're not getting fresh air, um, and then people were getting more depressed. And then during summer, the depression starts to lift. You know, people get outside more, suddenly they're a little bit happier, they're not as depressed. And and look, we've all felt it, you know, the winter blues and the summer rush. You know, everyone, summer comes, you want to be outside, you want to be around your friends, you're super social, you want to go out to restaurants and hang out in the pool and the beach and all this sort of stuff. Whereas at winter, you tend to slow down a little bit. You want to sit at home in front of the TV. Now, people mistakenly think that's a result of the cold, but it's not actually the cold. It's actually um, the sun exposure. So if you get that high level of UV exposure during winter, you don't get those same sort of feel. Like I, I, I've got a, um, a Mars UV um, machine and I use it daily. Um, and I find I, I just don't want to be indoors. Even during winter, I want to go outside. I don't care what the weather's like. I want to be out and about. I want to be doing stuff. I hate sitting around. And I, that, I really noticed the difference once I, I started doing the, the UV treatments. So, uh, sorry, James. You want to say so, that? how does um how does a infrared sauna feel compared to like your traditional sauna that everyone else would have like tried? Because most people have tried the Finnish yeah. style. Does it feel different? Yeah. Well, as I said, I've got the finish. Um, I do have an infrared at the UFC gym. I have used both. Mm. So your finish sauna, you're going to get a lot hotter. You're going to sweat a lot more because you're heating from the outside in. So the, the, the traditional saunas tend to be a lot more uncomfortable if you're not used to it. Um, the infrared saunas are a lot more tolerable. And that's part of the reason we kind of got it for the, the UFC gym is because, you know, 
you're not going to have as many hardcores that just want to get in there and die at 100 degrees. It's, I mean, that's most people would struggle at 20 minutes or even 10 minutes at 100 degrees. I usually spend an hour. You spend an hour in there? Yeah, uh, at that temperature. So In the finished sauna? Uh, yeah. That's insane. So, and again, whereas the infrared is a lot more comfortable, you'll get hot, but you don't get anywhere near as hot. Um, you still get the benefit. I just believe that the, the finish is going to give you better, more intense. Again, it's, it's like um, it's all about dosing. You get a better dose, you get a better effect. You need to do less of it. The more of you get, again, um, based on the, the sauna studies, I've limited it to an hour because um, generally they recommend between 20 to 60 minutes. Usually 20 minutes is the minimum amount four times a week, um, but the fins were doing it up to an hour, so – since we're in lockdown and like when I'm working normally, I normally don't have the time to sauna. Um, since we've been in lockdown, I've been spending an hour every day uh, in the sauna. It's my one hour I get to myself, so I kind of take advantage of it. Like uh, I watch the UFC in here when it's on, stream it through Fight Pass or whatever, um, or I listen to podcasts or things like that. Sometimes if I'm run down, I'll have a nap. I do have to be careful because I have fallen asleep oh a couple of times in the sauna. No it sounds way. really um, dangerous. Do you have like a fail safe or like a, does your wife come check well, on you? Or? Well, yeah, it's got a limited time. So it's, it will stop after four hours. I'm not sure if I'd survive four hours. Probably look um, like a piece maybe of beef my jerky. Part, my, my partner does know. She comes down and oh, checks good. on me. And, you don't want to end up of, like Ziz. It, it is kind of funny though because I have fallen asleep a couple of times. But I think I'm so used to it, I literally wake up like my body clock goes off and I get up because I've done it a couple of times when my phone has died, the battery's passed, it's gone. The alarm hasn't gone off. I've woken up. I'm like, fuck, how long have I been in here? Oh, Holy, that, shit, there's a big, a trip out. Holy shit, there's a, there's a big ball of water here. Then I get out and it's literally like it may be a couple minutes more, but it's usually around, oh, yeah, okay, I've only been there an hour. I haven't been. And then my partner will be coming down the stairs. Oh, I was just coming to get you. I was just wondering if you fell asleep again. Do you so, do you keep water nearby? Do you so you just sit yeah, in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. When I'm in oh, the sauna, okay. I have a, I have a two liter bottle of water. Oh, yeah. Usually, I'll have aminos or something in it, and I'll sip it. Because again, it's not about it's not like dry um, dry fasting. Um, it's just a, it's a more about raising your core temp- temperature, affecting your heat shock proteins, uh, getting a good sweat to clear toxins and things like that. So. It's more about the heat effect, not the dehydration effect. So no, I yeah. don't, I don't dehydrate myself. And it's the same as when I, I fast pretty much most days or what technically is actually more correctly time restricted eating. And then occasionally I'll do extended fast and things like that as well. Um, but even when I'm doing my fast, I tend to do water fast rather than dry fasting. Um, I do, I have seen there are a lot of benefits to dry fasting and that's, you see that in a lot of cultures. Um, particularly in Arab cultures where they, they have that time of year where they have to fast and it's dry fasting. But it's also quite difficult on the body. They can't train and they're limited to what they can do. So that's why I tend to stick to more uh, water fast rather than dry fast. But, again, I have done the odd dry fast when I'm when it's like a weekend or I've got nothing to do or things. Like that. A lot of times I do my extended fasts when I'm traveling because I know hotel food and plane food is – Absolutely crap, and you know I prefer whole whole natural foods. So I use a lot of my trips as an opportunity to do extended fasts. I um yeah, when I if I do fast, I try to fast during Ramadan just in case. Yeah, because I figure if I'm if I'm fasting, I may as well do it during Ramadan. 
Like you yeah, never know. Makes sense. If I'm yeah, getting makes points sense. or something, I don't know how it works. Like you never know. But um, <laughs> it's it's better than it's better than cutting weight. Um, I guess when I think about saunas and all that sort of thing, I I think about cutting weight, and I just in my head I'm like, how can you sit in there for an hour? But I guess if you're drinking water, then it makes sense. Yeah, it's it's more uh, more the ability to um, deal with the, the heat rather than. Uh, dehydration. Now, I'm going to switch you to speaker for a second. Yeah, no worries. Uh, because I have been in here for a little bit now. It is getting hot and I do need to grab a drink. Ready for the next bit? All right. Okay. So, uh, you mentioned something uh, to do with heat, shot pro- heat shock proteins. Um, I've, I've heard about this stuff and I heard about it first through... Proteins are, uh, are what are activated when you raise your core temperature uh, in your body and they have uh, they help with things like um, autophagy, mitophagy, all that sort of stuff. So when done in junction, conjunction with fasting and stuff like that, it um, allows the body um, to deal with things like apoptosis and removing senescent cells which are which can be damaging. So, you know, autophagy, think, you can think of it as the body's natural process of spring cleaning. Now, um, autophagy doesn't switch on and off, and that's the same for mitophagy and um, all those different related functions. They're always pretty much running, but the body will apply a certain amount of energy on it based on what you're doing. So when you start to fast, your body will, because you're not digesting, your body will actually ramp up autophagy, so autophagy moves up. And I think they've shown that um, it's beneficial after, I think up to 48 hours is where it kind of plateaus. Then it keeps going consistently to I think it'll be about 72 hours. And then after that, um, you've probably reached the, the benefit of your um, autophagy-related uh, benefits. Um, obviously, if you're looking for weight loss, you can fast longer if there are other things that you're looking to get out of your fasting. Um, but generally, they, they recommend your um, extended fast speed between somewhere between 24 to 72 hours sort of thing. 48 is the most common two days. Most people can do that without, uh, too much difficulty, especially if you, if you have water. Um, and usually in your water, you can have something like green tea and sometimes, um, they'll recommend aminos or something like that or the odd, uh, black coffee with it. Um, and again, it just depends, uh, what your goal is and what you're looking to achieve when you're doing. So Elvis, uh, what do you think about the um, hot, cold, hot, cold? So from what, from what I hear, some people, they'll go in the sauna for 10 to 20 minutes, get the heat shock proteins and then jump in cold water for 10 minutes to cool down, which is another process similar to like, you know, icing your body or whatever. And then they'll jump back into the hot sauna and then they'll jump well, back out. Well, that's funny. That's, that's pretty much. So during the week, Monday to Friday, I just do one hour sauna. On the weekend... I'll do 10-minute sauna, 10-minute ice bath, and then I hop back into the sauna again for about another 30 minutes uh, before uh, heading inside. And that's so uh, my hour is kind of broken up in into that hot and cold uh, process. So you do this every day. You do the hour every day. Do the hour every day, and then on weekends, so only end of the week do I ice bath. Now, people, some people, you know, recommending ice bathing every day, but what they forget is growth is a result of inflammation and damage. So when we work out, our muscles become inflamed, they slightly become torn, um, and that triggers our body to build more muscle. So, you know, okay, 
you've got a slight tear, you're, you're inflamed, the body has to respond to that um, by building more muscle. Now, if you do an ice bath straight after every workout, you're killing the inflammation, so you're telling your body, look, no need to do repair, we're, we're okay. So during the week, what I usually, what I would do and what I recommend to my, our guys do is you do your workout, you do your training, you jump into the sauna for 20 to 30 minutes, and then you'll have a cold shower at the end, and that's more just to cool you down. Maybe if you've got any injuries, just to help you feel better, but not so much that you reduce your internal inflammation. So then, inflammation is and, good. And, well, it's a, it's a no. Excessive inflammation, inflammation is not good. Uh, chronic inflammation is not good. But um, inflammation that's a result of a, a short damage. activity, yeah, is good. So there, you know, you got to remember there are different types of inflammation, and a lot of our autoimmune diseases are a result of chronic inflammation. We don't want chronic; we want acute inflammation from a particular activity, so we can benefit from it. And again, it's you know, stress is what kind of makes you grow, but too much stress is what breaks you down. So there's got to be kind of that balancing act. But then, yeah, end of the week. You do your ice bath because what you want to do is you want to get rid of as much inflammation as possible, put yourself into a state of as close to fully recovered as possible. So when you go back Monday, you're refueled and uh, uh, invigorated, ready ready to give your best. So that's why I like that that protocol of sauna during the week, cold shower just to kind of relax you, but no ice bath until your week's over. So once you've done your heart training, you that's it. You're now into your recovery phase. Then you can do your ice bath. So I do, you know, Saturdays. Saturdays, kind of my last. If I, if we were uh, training, or you know, I do my last session. You know, Saturday morning. And at the gym, we run ice baths Saturday afternoon. But usually, I'll wait till I get home and do my own ice bath, just because it's a little easier when you've got 20 other people. I don't want to take from their time. So I just find it easier if I just do mine separately. So end of the week. And then Sunday, because I don't do a lot of, um, I might go out and paddle on my kayak or something. Um, I, I like to do active rest. Um, I'll still hit a, a ice bath just to make sure I'm well and truly recovered for Monday and, and raring to go. Interesting. One thing I wanted to ask you about was um, what's the benefits of that like air chamber thing you've got at the gym? Okay. So that's a hyperbaric oxygen chamber. So it obviously has numerous benefits. As we all know, oxygen is the gas of life. We need it to survive. Um, so what it does is it concentrates oxygen in a fashion that allows your body to absorb it. So it's similar. It kind of works in reverse of what altitude training does when it comes to endurance. So I'll explain that process first, and then I'll go into the further health benefits of hyperbaric oxygen. And again, it was one of the things I picked up when I was over in the U.S. I noticed a lot of the um, the big camps or the, the guys with big names had their own, you know, they were calling them oxygen tents or hyperbaric tents and hyperbaric chambers. So I did my research and kind of looked into it. Um, so when you go to elevation, it's actually the opposite. It doesn't increase your oxygen. Your oxygen level drops from about 21% to 17%. So you're getting reduced oxygen intake, and that's why you see people who gas out at, um, at altitude. So what happens though when you're at altitude for an extended time, your body goes, I need more oxygen. This is, I need a certain amount of oxygen to be able to operate efficiently. So it starts producing more red blood cells. And again, this is also similar to what blood doping does. It's kind of the, the correct way to go about it without doing blood doping because 
uh, altitude increases your blood cell without incre- red blood cell count without increasing your blood volume. Whereas blood doping increases red blood cell count, but also increases blood volume, and that's where you have a lot of the problems with with heart attacks. Yeah, because well, if the next leader, your heart's trying to pump through the system. Whereas if you can create increase the red blood cells without increasing volume, and it's you're actually your cardio goes through the roof. You become well, sorry, it doesn't. It goes to a baseline. So if you're at altitude, you're fighting at altitude. The goal is to get you back to where you normally are. But the people that fight, that train at altitude that come to sea level, when you hit sea level, now all of a sudden you've got about 25% more red blood cells, which you needed to get to the same oxygen level at altitude at sea level. And then once you're at sea level, now you've got all these blood cells, the body drags in more oxygen. So now you've got more oxygen going to your muscles than you would be if you just trained at sea level. And you get a cardio boost, which probably lasts about a week. Then after about that, the week, two weeks, your body starts to kind of normalize again. And then your blood cell count will go back to where, you know, again, our body is a very finely tuned machine. It knows where it needs to be at and it will bring itself to the appropriate level. Now, you kind of understand how that works. Hyperbaric oxygen, what it does is you can't increase your red blood cell count. So you get into a chamber. Um, you can do it at normal air quality, so you can still do it at 21% um, uh, uh, oxygen saturation. So when we're at 21% oxygen saturation in our air, our blood is able to get to about a 9900% oxygen saturation. So the question is, how can I get benefit? So what happens is when you go into the, a hyperbaric oxygen chamber, you can't saturate your red blood cells anymore, but you can saturate the blood's plasma surrounding your red blood cell. So what happens is when a red blood cell drops off an oxygen, there's some in its plasma, it'll pick it up and then pass it on again. So you can increase your oxygen saturation in your blood plasma. Now, again, you can do it just with a hyperbaric chamber without additional oxygen. Or what most do is they will have a oxygen concentrator, which will pump in about, it's about a 96, 97% oxygen, which gives you about a 92% oxygen saturation within the chamber itself um, while you're in there. And that obviously means more oxygen. So you get, again, this is what I was talking about. It's dose respondent. You have a high dose, you get more oxygen and it'll stay with you. Now, when you first do it, the effects probably only last a couple of hours. It is something you have to do regularly to see an ongoing benefit. But the more you do it, the more your body becomes accustomed to it, the more your body will tend to hold on to that oxygen um, as well. So um, it's particularly good for things like cancer. Cancer patients use it a lot because cancer is an anaerobic uh, dysfunction in the cell. The cells died. It can no longer work in an aerobic fashion. So it starts um, glycating um, glucose. It kind of ferments it to produce energy and needs an anaerobic state. So if you can increase increase your oxygen levels and create a very strong aerobic stake, it makes it very difficult for cancer to survive. Now, that alone is not enough to get rid of cancers, but if you do it with any sort of treatment, you're going to improve the success of the treatment, which is also then goes back to fasting because if you're fasted when you're getting these cancer treatments, you're naturally going into a higher state of um, body repair and your, your um, apoptosis is going to be more 
improve, it's going to get rid of more of the, the damaged cells and it's going to work more efficiently. So if you start putting fasting and hyperbaric oxygen, there's a few other methodologies you can kind of put in there. You get a better, um, again, dose-dependent uh, effect. So the higher the dose, the more effective uh, it is. And that's kind of what the oxygen chamber, hyperbaric oxygen chamber is about. It's about increasing your um, oxygen dose so you can have an increased um, overall effect, whether it's for recovering from the, an injury, healing from cancer or cancer treatment, or just increasing your cardio so you can work a little bit harder while you're training and improve your cardio when it comes to uh, event performance. Uh, Elvis, I was training at a gym in Concord. It's called Combine Air Training. Have you yep. heard of that one? Uh, not familiar with it, no. So, they, it's like an F45 sort of thing where they do circuit yep. training, but the room is... um is they got the atmosphere machine where it's the oxygen saturation or whatever. Yes. So, and, yeah, that's um, an, an oxygen room. Yeah, yeah. So, they put the little thing on your finger, the little – they clip your finger and then it reads your oxygen saturation of your blood. Yep. And um, while uh, I was pulse, in there – pulse, pulse oximeter. Pulse oximeter. While I was in there, yep. uh, first few days, it was rough. Like, it was so rough. Like, I wanted to give yep. up. Doing like um, I was doing one of these thirty-minute classes or whatever. It was intense, but then a week later it was okay, and and I would I would all, I would feel kind of high like coming out of it. Well, yeah, that's one of the things I, I tell people when you get out of um, hyperbaric oxygen chamber, you you kind of feel, especially if you haven't done it before, you'll definitely feel lightheaded, and so you've got I always that's tell people, and they're like, oh no no, I'll be fine. I'm like, no, trust me, you're going to feel wobbly on your legs and feel a bit lightheaded and. But the more you do it, you get kind of accustomed to it and you get a natural high. You feel kind of invigorated. You have kind of, you're happier. Again, it goes, you know, increased oxygen, increased sunlight, um, all work together and it improves your mood um, as well. Interestingly enough, the, the Army has it's what's referred to as an altitude room. Obviously, theirs is a little bit probably more high tech. Um, it's the same sort of thing. They work out in an altitude room, which does um, the similar effect, but um, I purchased my hyperbaric oxygen chamber and then I had a couple of soldiers, obviously. I, I get a lot of soldiers and police who train with us because we have such a great uh, reputation there at King's. Uh, but obviously we have a base nearby which also uh, helps a lot. But they were telling me the week after I purchased the hyperbaric oxygen chamber, the Army went out and purchased one for their, their soldiers. Oh, now, nice. for me, that's a great sign because the Army only uses evidence-based uh, information. So, if they can see a like definite benefit, um, well, yeah, we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, you know, so again, they would use the altitude room before, and to get an individual, individualized benefit, they introduced the hyperbaric oxygen chamber. So that was kind of uh, an interesting thing that I kind of timed it pretty well there. Elvis, if I um um. How many sessions a week should I do in like an altitude room? Like if I'm going in there and doing like a 30, 40 minute class three times a week, um, do you reckon that'd be like quite a substantial benefit or should it something should it be something yeah, I'm doing every day or once a week or look, honestly, it will come down to what your goals are. You know? You could do it once a week and if your your benefit is your goal is to have a general well being and improved Fitness, you know, that's going to help you once a week. If you're going to be a little bit more competitive, you're going to get out and compete more. Three times a week is probably a good amount of time. You know, if you're competing at the highest level, you may look at doing it more often. Again, I wouldn't 
I know the hyperbaric oxygen chamber, you can do it every single day. Or you can even do it twice a day. There are no um, negative side effects. Again, you just get to a certain point where um, you maximize your dose and you just no longer get benefit with the hyperbaric oxygen chamber. With an altitude room, I'm not as familiar with it. Um, and so I'm unsure whether there is a plateau or whether there is – the main thing I would be concerned about would be the overtraining feature. So the difference between the hyperbaric oxygen chamber is that I view it as a, as a recovery and a rest tool, so providing mm-hmm. oxygen to my muscles, which allows them um, to repair better and um, to help with recovery, whereas an altitude room, because it is a training tool, if you're using it too much, I could right. see yourself going backwards not as a result of the altitude, but the excessive training where you're putting too much stress on your body and not providing enough recovery sessions to recover from the workout that you're kind of doing. But once again, as I said, I'm not totally unfamiliar with what they are and kind of how they work um, because I haven't had access to one. I haven't done a lot of research in that area. Um, As you can tell, I'm a bit of a obsessive compulsive. When I get into something, I like to to know as much as uh, as possible. <laughs> um, I just thought you were so, different. Yeah. yeah, I am a little bit special. We're not going to go there, yeah. I hope. Not James special. So, That's a different type of special. Yeah. Uh, what? Um, we, can, we can all aspire to that. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Whenever yeah. says he aspires to be like me, awesome. That's it. Just a few more vaccines and we can all be like James. Yeah. Um. So, do you know much about... um? Uh, sauna. So sauna and the hyperbaric work in different ways. So sauna works with yeah. the heat shock. It's the about it's about cell death and repairing and renewal. And the the hyperbaric is about getting more red blood cells in, which also well, it's more, no, no, it's more the hyperbaric oxygen is about providing more oxygen ah, to your red blood cells, so it can get so it can get to the cells and your muscles and your organs. Which all require oxygen. What about your brain? More. What about your brain? Oh, yeah, and, and obviously your brain as well. No, no, no. There's definitely, like, I've had autistic children come in and use the chamber, and the parents have seen great benefits in them starting to normalize a little bit more. No way. Um, when, they, when they're socially a little bit inept, they, they start becoming more socially cognizant, um, more outgoing. So, no, absolutely. Oxygen therapy is fantastic. Amazing. Um, I've done a, obviously, part of why I actually got into the infrared, near infrared light was, uh, because of cognitive repair, cognitive recovery, as most of you know, you know, had a 10 plus year fight career. Um, I'm not going to lie. I've had numerous concussions and I just wanted to ensure that going forward, I wasn't suffering the ill effects. And, you know, I've seen a lot of pugilistic fighters who are suffering from CTE and other forms of dementia as a result of circumvent that um, with a lot of the stuff and obviously, you know, oxygen therapy is part of that, <clears throat> a red light therapy, hot and cold therapy, a diet, you know, keto, carnivore diet, um, beta hydroxybutyrate supplementation, which is what your body produces when you go into ketosis. It's just a, it's one of the three forms of ketones your body produces um, and things like acetylcholine and um, a few other supplements and stuff designed to um, improve cognitive uh, performance. So and your recovery. your your just your your main mindset uh, with all this uh, experimentation and optimization is to, you know, you've put your body through hell through fighting, and you're just trying to repair as much damage 
damage as you can and live the best life you can going forward, correct? Hello, Elvis, are you there? Elvis. Yep. Sorry, oh, okay. I think you just cut out. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you were saying your, your goal with... No, what I was saying, so your... So with um, with the damage you took from fighting, um, would you say that was one of the major uh, reasons why you shifted to this really proactive health and recovery and repair sort of um, lifestyle, or were you always this yeah, way? Yeah, lifestyle methodology. Um, can you hear me all right? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 We can hear you fine. Exactly. The time was going to be hot, so I had to go to sleep and put a performance lower in front of the sauna because there was no heat. Um, so what happened was 2010, I was supposed to fight in UFC 110, um, and it was the first time UFC was in Australia. It was going to be that rematch with Chris, Chris Hazelman. It was going to be an absolutely uh, awesome experience. I was so excited. And it was also the first time I had ever gone overseas to do a training camp. It was all, all my previous career, I just walked from home. I basically pretty much was working the whole time, running my gym. I pretty much just did my training in between life. My guy could just have to fit it in where I could. Whereas one ten, because it was such a big thing, coming to Australia, um, the rematch, I really wanted to put in the best performance um, I possibly could. So I ended up going overseas, ended up training in Thailand for a couple of weeks. I went to um, Texas with Carlos Machado for a couple of weeks and then ended up going into Las Vegas, uh, training, um, my friend Forrest and uh, some of the other, you know, extreme couture, uh, Frank Mir, uh, Robert Drysdale. So a few of those gyms getting around, uh, just to finish my camp in Vegas because obviously it's MMA and I could really tune in my MMA sparring, um, right before the fight and during the camp, I had a pretty um, like I kind of had a bad shoulder, but it was never bad enough for me to, to affect what I did. It just used to ache at night and things like that. So <clears throat> nothing serious, but the the intensive two months, two and a bit months of just straight training, literally training twice a day. I would wake up in the morning, go train, come home, have a nap, go out, train in the afternoon, come back have a sauna or um, swim in the pool, go to sleep. And I kind of did that for two months and my shoulder blew out pretty much. Um, it was already starting to go, but I kind of thought it would be fine for the fight. And quite literally, my very last sparring session that gave out while I was, um, funnily enough, I was doing my last sparring round with Eagle Propriet. Uh, for Kayak, who was also preparing for his fight in UFC 110. And we're all up against the cage, swinging like uh, madmen, um, with neither of us with any regard for ourselves at all. And just during the fight, or during not the fight, the, the sparring, my right shoulder came out. Uh, sorry, it didn't come out. It just stopped working. Mm. Like, I couldn't move it. So what I actually started doing was pivoting my body, kind of swinging a bit like a bolo just to try and get it so he wouldn't realize my arm. Oh, my God. Stop working. I didn't want anyone else to realize. And then as soon as the buzzer went, I collapsed on the ground in pain. I could barely move it. Um, ended up icing it, waiting to see how it went. Um, 
it didn't really recover much the next day. I went to a doctor. Um, they had like, look, you've got, to, you've got to see a specialist. There's nothing we can do. It's going to be a couple of weeks before we can see one. We end up going to the UFC. <laughs> they actually got me in with a specialist straight away. I got, um, I got steroid injections or, um, into the shoulder. I got light laser guided injections, all sorts of stuff. Um, injections into the bone. Anything to try and get it. I just. Is that like cortisone? Yeah, cortisone. That was what I was trying to. So I was getting cortisone, um, and then laser guided cortisone and a few other bits and pieces to try and see if we could. Um, but I just, the issue wasn't, I, if it was just the pain, I would have put up with it. Like, I, like, I, pain's not an issue for me. I, I, people that know me, I walk into staff and I bust my leg open, I'm bleeding and, a couple of hours later, someone would say, you're bleeding. I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize. But it was the fact that I couldn't use my arm properly. And that's why I kind of really, because it would, during the fight, it just, got, it just stopped working. Um, it was like, it just went numb. But obviously, once the training was over, it kind of recovered again. And then during the week when I was doing stuff, I was trying to do light training. It would be working fine. And then suddenly I'd get pins and needles that would go numb for a couple of minutes. Now, again, if you're just training, it's not a big deal, but if you're in the middle of a fight and let's say I'm either trying to finish the guy or the guy's trying to finish me, my arm goes numb, that's it. Game mm-hmm. over. So at that level, I mean, at that level, you know, absolute respect for everyone who gets in there, gets into the air, because these guys are not stumped, they're all killers. A moment's weakness is enough to, to end it for you. And I was just, the last thing I wanted was to go in there and lose, not because I wasn't good enough, but because my body couldn't hold up. So I ended up not fighting. And with that kind of, I ended up having to have surgery. I ended up being out for about 12 months. At the end of the 12 months, I was feeling depressed because I hadn't trained and fight. I put on a lot of weight. I think I got up to about, I stopped weighing myself at about 108 kilos. I probably got a little bit higher than that. Um, you know, I was overweight. My arm didn't feel good. Mentally, I was not there. Um, and then I kind of tried to work, train my way out of it. And I was really struggling to get the weight off. Um, even though people say you can't outframe a, a bad guy, you can. Honestly, if you're young, mm-hmm. fit, healthy, and you really train that hard, you can't out, out train bad diet, but you can only do it for so long. You hit a point where you can't, and that's kind of where I was at. How, how old were you at this time, Elvis? Uh, so I would have been about 39, heading into 40. Um, and that's kind of where I kind of um, started realizing there was more to it. I started looking at other athletes that had retired. And Wait, so you were uh, you fighting up until that? Uh, no. So I stopped fighting in uh, uh, 2010. Yeah. But I wanted to keep competing. So, so you're competing in jiu-jitsu myself. and stuff? Yes, that was my goal. I wanted to get back into jiu-jitsu, but I just didn't feel I could get my body back into the state. It actually took until 2014 that I was able to get myself back to a point where I felt comfortable in competing, and that's where I got silver at the, the World Masters that year. But anyway, so I was struggling with a lot of different things. Um, I started looking at a lot of, you know, you guys like Jeff Fennick, Mike Tyson, they'd all blown up and I was looking at football players like 
smell and anger and there was a whole bunch but they just ballooned overweight. It's almost and I realized what had happened is you kept eating the same way you were when you were training, but you're not training at the same level. Once you start training smarter, not harder, you're now not compensating for the, the mistakes you're making. So that's when I started looking into um, improving my diet. I started looking at fast, intermittent fasting, daily fast, which led me to low carb, which led me to keto. Started looking at um, the keto, cognitive enhancement, improvement in cognitive performance, not losing. So I, I also noticed myself having problems where I couldn't, I'm trying to remember something's on the, you know, that's on the tip of your tongue. But it started happening more and more, and I started getting a little bit um, concerned about it. So I started looking so you, deeper into it. Right. And I basically really started looking at it a full um, protocol of repair and recovery. Um, and one of the mistakes people look at is increasing lifespan without considering health span. And I kind of came into that, that idea of health span being more important than lifespan. And it's through improved health span that we can increase lifespan. Whereas a lot of people look to increase their lifespan, but they're the people that end up on machines, they live a longer life, but it's unhealthier, they can't walk, they need to be assisted, they're on breathing machines. So they're living longer lives, but they're not living better lives. So my goal was to live a better life and through that process increase um my actual lifespan through improved health habits. So <clears throat> that's kind of where I started diverging just from the, the weight loss and training side of it. Obviously, it allowed me to optimize my physical ability. You know, I probably got in the best shape of my life at either 40 or 41. I got to about 8% body fat. Um, was lean. I was walking around at 91 kilos, which was my optimal weight, my height weight. Um, if I were fighting the UFC sort of thing, it's my fight weight for um, at the, the jiu-jitsu. Um, and, you know, that was all at 40, not at 30, not at 20, you know. So I realized how much the things we do really do affect how we feel and what we are capable of doing. And I realized that the whole package, you can't you rely on just one part of the equation. You're going to hit a point where, it's not going to be enough, and that's kind of where it hit me after recovering from that, that surgery. So that's why at King, not only do I have everything you need for training, your kickboxing, your boxing, wrestling, MMA, your cage, your ring, you have um, a weight area, you know, but then we also have your hyperbaric oxygen, we have a sauna, we, do, we have an ice bath, ice bars on the weekend, we have uh, hot yoga, um, so all these added therapies designed to complement your training. Now, obviously a lot of younger guys may not realize the benefit of it, but it is there for them if they want to use it. Um, I wish I'd had it all in one place um, when I was fighting, but if I couldn't have it, at least um, the guys in my circle, um, my gym family, at least they have it available to them. Well, I think that's great, and I think it's really good that you're – you really care about this sort of stuff and health and you're you're educated on it. I feel like a lot of coaches, at least when I was younger and when I started training, they didn't really um they didn't really think about that sort of stuff too much. And I feel like um we didn't really know much about it either. It it feels like it feels like now there's a lot more information about that. 
well, apologize because I do know I was one of those coaches at that point. And even though I knew some of the stuff, I wasn't aware of all of it. And again, that's what the learning process is and the ability to accept your limitations and learn from them and improve and um, come back better from them. So, you know, um, sadly, I couldn't give you everything I had back then, but hopefully the guys now can kind of reap the benefits of my knowledge um, and experience kind of moving forward. Well, I think we, like, we had, um, like, you guys, you and Anthony were pretty, like, you guys were pretty smart and you, you had good game plans and the way you trained us was, um, it was pretty intelligent and it's like we weren't getting in there and taking crazy amounts of damage or doing anything stupid and, like, a, like a lot of gyms even now, they're, they're sitting there sparring super hard and fucking themselves up and all that sort of thing. So, there wasn't anything like that going on, which is really good. Yeah, no, look, I think we had the training pretty well down um and you know we had a good idea about recovery but it was not very in depth and it was more about just make sure you eat healthy mm. you know make sure you rest on sunday and you know make sure you drink plenty of water it was all the basic stuff the training i mean obviously um i pretty much pioneered the training we have today i was doing mma training when no one else was the functional training did the mma people basically developed functional training, functional training and tire flipping and sledgehammers and tossing tires and all that sort of come. Battle ropes. All that, all that sort of stuff came as a result of, you know, MMA fighters trying to have the explosiveness and the endurance combined into a single activity, which kind of replicated what happened inside a cage and a fight. So the training, you know, really wasn't the issue. We understood the conditioning. We understood the strength work, uh, we understood the technical aspect of it, you know. Um, I particularly value external coaches, like as much experience I have, there are certain areas I know, I have absolutely no doubt I have more than enough knowledge in, but there are areas like, you know, I make sure I've got a good boxing coach, I have a good wrestling coach, very specialist coaches in those areas um, to really fine-tune the, the, the smaller details. I still get in um, coaches to do seminars, whether it's uh, Muay Thai seminars, Jiu-Jitsu seminars, um, whatever, like wrestling seminars. Um, I'm always looking at, at fine-tuning, providing as much information. I don't assume um, that I know everything. Um, I can provide the majority of the framework. I can provide the structure that's needed for them to succeed. I can get them fine-tuned in certain areas and then I bring in the specialists in the other areas where we need to tighten things up and we rely on those specialist coaches to really um, get you performing at, at your peak. So, you know, being a coach isn't – it shouldn't be a lonely duty. You should be working with other coaches, with other people. You should be reviewing, working together. It's, it's not a single, you know – as I said, I have multiple coaches. I also have, um, you know, my guys behind the scenes, um, you know, Daniel Ong, uh, Brian Ebersole, and these guys behind the scenes helping out, helping fine-tune training, looking at footage, helping with um, match matches, looking up footage. I, I don't have the time to do all that by myself, so it's great having uh, these guys behind the scenes helping out, um, making my workload easier and ensuring our fighters get the – uh, the best of everything. That's amazing. Um, Elvis, um, 
is what's 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 happening in the uh, local scene? I guess now with like weight cutting, how is weight cutting and weigh-ins and all that stuff working? Because I know in the UFC they changed how it all works. Is it still the same as it was? Um, well, UFC really haven't changed a lot. Oh, okay. They all they've done is they've um, moved out. The weight, uh, the weigh into a little bit further out than what it used to be, about 24 hours before the um, the fight. Now they, I think they've moved it out to about 36 hours, so it just gives the guys an extra about 12 hours um, to rehydrate. So it's just they're just making the rehydration process a little bit more efficient. Um, uh, whereas one. Um, They've changed it to they they do weight cut and hydration tests, so they don't allow you to. Um, one FC that is. Well, it used to be one FC. Now they just called one. Oh, they don't okay. like to be called FC. Um, but yeah, they they they, they kind of change it. But again, there's um, not a lot of uh, transparency on on what's going on. So I'm curious to see exactly how they do it and whether they, you know, because I've seen a few matches where the guys are a little bit. The hometown guy's substantially bigger than the, the, the traveling guy or whatever. So, um, but the idea is definitely good. I think I like the idea of, um, not relying on his big weight cuts. That's what, um, IMAP do. Um, this is the, the international, um, amateur mixed martial arts, uh, international mixed martial arts federation. Um, you know, they have uh, world championships. We had Olivia Ma, who got silver at the world and won the Australian Oceania titles recently, well, actually before the lockdowns. Um, and they've got some great programs coming forward. They've got some amateur stuff, which is half ground, half standing, to kind of allow grapplers to get into it and strikers without going all the way uh, into it. So I'm looking forward to um, their programs moving forward. Um but they they also have a, a multi-day event where you have to weigh in every day. So you've basically got to walk around close to your fight weight. Obviously, you can cut a little bit of weight, but if you I cut think that's, too much, I think that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. It makes you fight it closer to your weight. Again, you don't have to be exactly on weight. So you know you might cut half a kilo on the day before you weigh in, but half a kilo is nothing. Whereas if you're cutting two or three kilos. If you're fighting that straight after the weigh-in, that's it. You're stuck. You're not going. You're going to burn yourself out. So it makes people fight at their their natural weight. And the good thing about that is, is one of the biggest issues of weight cut is when you rehydrate, the brain fluid is one of the last areas that really gets fully rehydrated. So that's why you see um, a lot of knockouts from people who haven't rehydrated properly. So perfect example is. Um, uh, Conor McGregor with Aldo. So oh, if, you yeah. looked at, if you looked at Aldo, he was very drawn out at the weigh-in and the um, the fight. He didn't look his usual self. And what people don't realize, that was the first time Aldo was allowed, had to weight cut and wasn't allowed to rehydrate with IV. Really? I didn't know that. Yes. So he previously had always rehydrated with he does a very, very big weight cut. Oh, wow. He's always rehydrated with IV. And now he's fighting at 135. He was, actually, he was actually saying, yeah, I know. Um, he was actually saying in the lead up to that fight, I don't care, I'm going to rehydrate with IV, I'm going to do it anywhere, blah, blah, blah. 
obviously once you got to the fight weight, these corners like no, because they're going to test you, and if you fail, you don't fight. So he ended up not being able to rehydrate with I three. He ended up cutting too much, and he didn't recover. And if you look, you actually look at the photos of him, you can see he looks very gaunt compared to what he normally does. Like he's, even when you look at him now at bantamweight, he looks fantastic at bantamweight. Whereas he was at feather and he was looking at gaunt in that fight. And that one shot put him away. Now, I'm not saying Connor wouldn't have done it with that one shot anyway, but it definitely had a cumulative effect. Like, I think it would affected him worse than had he not had a proper weight cut and rehydration. Because when you saw him at fights after that, once he learned how to rehydrate without an IV, he was getting hit with monster shots and not going down. Mm. You know, and it took a lot of damage before he started going down, like the the, the the max fights and stuff like that. He was taking shot after shot after shot, um, and and that that one really hydrated, uh, really highlighted how much not rehydrating properly can affect you. And again, that's why I like the IMAF format, where you're going in, you're not dehydrated, you get hit, you're not going to sustain as much damage cognitively. It's going to be better for you long term, less likely to be suffering. Uh, adverse effects and concussions and things like that. That's kind of what um, one is doing, but um, obviously I would like to see more transparency in it. I'd like to see uh, actual athletic commissions take it upon themselves because the problem is when the promoter is the person who's responsible for overseeing it all, it's a little bit, you know, what's going on, whereas at least with the UFC, they have uh, uh, an external party uh athletic commission who's responsible for the weight, for checking the weights, and they could be the ones responsible for checking hydration and things like that. And I, and I think it would be um, a great way moving forward. I don't know how easy it would be to implement, but in my opinion, it would. I think it would be the way forward. Do we not have any sort of body in Australia that helps uh, coaches and gyms like provide information for their fighters on how to do this weight cut process properly and safely? Um, there's no governing body, though. There are individuals, there are dietitians and nutritionists or obviously people who've been in the fight game and done it themselves and, and travelled overseas and um, done it with high-level guys. You know, like, you know, obviously I fought in the UFC. Uh, I didn't have to do a lot of weight cutting, but I, I hung around with a lot of guys in the UFC, he did it. I talked to a lot of the coaches. I uh, got Brian Eversole on our team. Obviously, not only did he do that through the UFC, but he had a, also a, a long wrestling career, so he was very familiar with it. So there are lots of sources of information, and as I said, nutritionists and dietitians and um, specialist trainers who kind of work in that area that can, they can kind of help you. But for uh, for most of them, unless it's part of your gym, it's a, it's a paper service. So um, you know, it's a service you pay for and you get what you kind of pay for. Do you think um, for, for like amateur fighters, do you think it's a, a good idea for them to cut a lot of weight or what what sort uh, of – how much how much uh, weight I'm are these a, fighters cutting? Like what, what – you know? I'm, I'm of the opinion that for an amateur, you should be cl- fighting closer to your weight. Mm. Obviously, you should still be cutting weight um, because you want to start training your body to do it, but I don't think you should be cutting large amounts of weight so what I like to see is guys fighting at a certain weight and not cutting too much rather than trying to get down too low, fight closer to weight because what you'll find is as they mature and as they train, 
they're naturally going to start putting muscle mass on. They're going to get bigger. Like you look at most guys during the prime of their career, they actually will get bigger. They'll usually move up a weight class. Once they start hitting the end of the career, that's when you'll see guys heading back down. But that's because with age, you will also lose muscle mass um, and bone mass and things. That's just a natural part of aging. And they also become more optimized in their ability to cut weight. So then they can, again, go lower weight classes. Um, but in the prime of your career, you generally see guys moving up weight classes. And you see the guys who move up have more success rather than the guys who move down. It's always the guys moving up that have success in the, like, you know, like uh, Rob Whitaker moving up. Um, you know, guys like that who move up tend to have more success and the guys moving down because it's easier. It's more healthy to put on muscle mass um, and then to cut from a healthy position. So I'd rather fight as an amateur, fight closer to weight, cut a little bit of weight, use that career to put on strength and size. And then as you get into the pros, you're slowly moving further from your weight class, but you're doing it at the same time as you're increasing your weight cuts. So it's a gradual increase of weight with a gradual increase of weight cut rather than going deep into the weight cut from the start. Because otherwise you cut, in your, you, cut, you cut your ability to get stronger and bigger over time if you do it that more dangerous, you know? Well, you, you cut your ability to recover. You, yeah. you um, affect performance and, and recovery and cardio and a lot of stuff, especially if you don't do it properly, if your body's not used to it. Um, I know I've had a, a very early in my career, I had some grappling events where I didn't know how to cut weight properly. And I cut something like four or five kilos the day before. Um, and I know the high-level guys now do that with breathe. I didn't know how to do it properly. I literally did it in a sauna, and I had some of the worst performances. You know, after 10 minutes, I was done. Mm. Um, in some ADCC matches where it was grappling, thankfully not striking, but it made me realize how difficult and how dangerous weight can cutting can be if you don't um, do it properly. Yeah, fair enough. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you was, yep. uh, how did how did you meet Anthony, and like, how did the story of like SPMA start? So, um, we were, I was training at uh, Anthony Langy's gym in Manly. It was in Manly Primary School. It was in the school hall. Put that down. I'd moved up from Canberra. Um, I kind of discovered, um, you know, obviously I was a Bruce Lee fan. Discovered Jun Fan. Through the Blitz magazine and John Well, I discovered Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I discovered these people called the Gracies um, while in Canberra. And one of the jobs I worked out, a guy gave me a copy of UFC 2 on VHS tape. Um, it got me all excited. So I was playing beach volleyball. So I decided to move up to Sydney so I could play Cold Beach um, as well as find them because I knew there was a Jiu-Jitsu school up there. So I ended up coming going to train at Anthony Langier's gym um, in Manly. And then, obviously, while I was there, um, I think I joined there like October 95 and then January 96. Anthony came along. He started training there. He'd been training um, at Kemp's Creek with Paul Zadro, uh, doing Kempo, and then, you know, once a week they were doing a little bit of grappling, and then he started looking for a grappling school. He found Anthony Langier. Uh, he, was, he would drive out to... So Concord, we're about the same size. Back then, we were about 95 kilos, both fairly similar in weight. So we just naturally became training partners. 
Um, and obviously, you know, you know what it's like. You train with people, you see them all the time. You start going to competitions with them on the weekends. You start becoming friends. You start and hang out. So, you know, we started going to movies on the weekends and hanging out just generally. <laughs> um, shooting the shit and that sort of stuff. Um, just something to do when, you know, after training, we'd go out, go to a restaurant, have some dinner or on the weekends, go out and check out chicks at the club and that, that sort of stuff. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, yeah, well, look, everyone, you know, everyone grew up doing it. It's not yeah, like yeah. we're special and we're not the only ones. Look, every, everyone listening to this, I'm sure you went through it. What, so you used to go clubbing with, you used to go clubbing with Anthony Parosh? Oh, well, it was more bars and, um, oh, I couldn't imagine that. that sort of stuff, yeah. But, you know, but no, we did go to the occasional club and stuff. I think I was more of the clubber. He was more of the, the pub bar sort of thing. Right, right. Um, you know, we ended up doing security together and that sort of stuff, working the doors. Um, and, you know, we were training Anthony Langies and then uh, a guy named John Simon. He had a school in um, uh, uh, North Ride and then he ended up opening up one in Leichhardt and we were training at the Leichhardt. And um, then he ended up moving to Melbourne. He asked if we wanted to take over. We ended up taking over the gym, and then from there, you know, we did that for about a year or so, and then we're like, you know what, do you want to, you know, let's do it full time. So we started looking at some places, um, you know, around you know Redfern and uh, inner city, and then obviously Concord, and we ended up picking the Concord place. And you know, back then, what was really big was using people's names, and you know, we just went with our names, Cynic Perosh Martial Arts. Um, it flowed well. It was a nice, easy acronym, and we kind of, you know, it started with it was called Fenetic Perosh, and then eventually became SBMA, and then SBMA Concord, and SBMA Moorbank, and then eventually um, Kings Academy and, and Team Perosh. So, uh, yeah, been a, a, a long journey. Mm. When, um, when did you, when did you start fighting in the UFC, Elvis? And were you were you teaching like were you coaching at this time? Or was this before you opened okay, the gym? So I, I started fighting. I think it was nineteen ninety seven. That was the first event in Australia. Uh, it was called the Australasian UFC. It later be rebranded to Cage Combat One because they got sued by the actual um, UFC. Uh, then nineteen ninety eight, I ended up going to Japan and fighting in rings. And then I didn't do anything for a couple of years. Uh, in 2000, I ended up going to uh, Canada, fighting in the UCC, which later became TKO, and that's the organization GSP came out of. I actually fought for the, the, their world heavyweight title. Got screwed over a little bit in that fight, ended up getting oh. a draw in my belt. It was a bit of a shit. Then I the Montreal screw job. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I got a... Um, a fight with Frank Shamrock in K1. Um, that ended up going to a decision. I lost the points decision to Frank Shamrock after five rounds in the K1. And because Frank was the last person to beat Jeremy Horn and Tito Ortiz, and Jeremy was supposed to be fighting Tito for the light heavyweight belt and, belt, and then he had to pull out. No, sorry. Jeremy was supposed to fight Cafe Dante, which was a Brazilian black belt for the number one contender spot, to fight Tito. Cafe got a massive staph infection, hole in his leg, had to withdraw the week before. So because I had fought Frank and went to a decision and lost the decision, Frank had submitted Jeremy. 
I was brought into, <clears throat> they won't tell you this, but I was supposed to lose to Jeremy Horn. What? Wait, wait, wait. Um, they told you to lose to him? No, 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 no. They didn't tell me to lose. But oh, so I were knew you supposed to? Sorry. I, you- knew, I knew what they expected. Like, oh, okay. But they kind I- of heard the rumblings. Jeremy was supposed to fight Tito. They wanted to build him up. Jeremy was a big name. I was pretty much a nobody. Hold on. Frank um, tapped Jeremy Horn. Frank tapped Jeremy, and then Frank couldn't tap me. So what they were thinking was, if Jeremy taps me, then they can say he's improved and deserved the fight at Tito. Right. And like, even though it was never officially told to me that way, I heard a few of the stuff behind the scenes talking about it because they were already planning for Jeremy versus Tito, well, even while I was there supposedly fighting. So I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. And obviously, I went out and spoiled it, beat Jeremy. Um, which was an absolutely awesome experience. What'd you get him with? Um, uh, well, I mean, it's the the dead Elvis triangle armbar. That's right. Um, like, I think they some someone tried to claim it as the dead orchard now, but we know it's uh, the dead Elvis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as it was termed by uh, John Danaher. Thank you, John, for giving me uh, the dead Elvis name. Um, but yeah, so it was kind of funny because all the so back in the day, obviously pre kind of internet wasn't very. Um, strong. It was mostly chat groups and bulletin boards. Um, it was actually, um, there was a full contact fighter newspaper. So he would go out and they'd do their pre-fight um, predictions and coaches and fighters would do predictions of all the fights and stuff. Uh, here in Australia, we'd always get it about a month after the events because, you know, it took so long to get over here. So this was the first time I actually ever got a copy of full contact fighter before the event. And it was the event that I was fighting in. And they were predicting my fight against Jeremy. And the funny thing was, is every single person picked me to lose to Jeremy in under three minutes by submission. And I tapped him out at two minutes, 59 seconds Fuck. by triangle armbar. So I kept, got their prediction right. It was under three minutes by submission, but I got it. Fuck so yeah. that was yeah. That was that was actually a pretty cool um, thing. I, I really, I kind of I've been looking to try and get my hands. So I, I had a copy of the Full Contact Fighter newspaper magazine. I always wanted to get it out so I could post it, but I've never been able to find it. Like you know, obviously once I realised the value of it, was um, that was that novel. was that your most satisfying win? Yeah, probably. Yeah, it would be. It was. It was. Um, like, I've had a lot of amazing matches, like um, fighting K1 and, and the K1 GP was one of the most amazing experiences. Fighting for a world title was um, an absolute – but that that win was – I mean, it was my first time in the UFC, and that was my, – my goal was to fight in the UFC and, and to, to go out in that sort of style and win that way. Was pretty, uh, it, it's hard to beat, so. Elvis – what was um what was K one like with uh did was that announcer there at that time that lady? Uh, Len Hart. Um, honestly, I can't remember. Um, I don't think she was at, at that event, but she could have been. Uh, I, that was one of the most overwhelming events. There was so much going on. I met guys like Mirko Krokop and uh, Ernesto Hust and Stefan Lico and um just. So many, I absolutely. I met Hicks and Gracie and the additional world. I just met all these amazing legends of the sport that I'd, I'd looked up to for years. 
Um, and it was in an, an arena that almost had nearly 80,000 people in the Tokyo Dome. Um, it was honestly one of the most overwhelming experiences um, I've ever had. So, um, yeah, she may have been there. I, I don't, I honestly don't remember because there's just so much, so many other things that overwhelmed me on, on that on that day. It was, it is one of my favourite memories, along with it, uh, obviously the UFC beating Jeremy and then fighting Tito for the world title. Probably three, it's my top three uh, personal experiences uh, in the fight game. Um, well, what's it like walking out to eighty thousand people? Honestly, um, or are you just so focused you're not even? Oh no, no, no! It's it's um. It's crazy. It's like it is one of the biggest rushes, but I've actually got bigger rushes from smaller crowds. Like the first time I fought in Australia in 1997 at the Cage there was only 5,000 people in the area, but everyone was chanting my name. That is one. That that first time was the is the one time I really remember. So I've never had that experience before. Mm. I have never had anyone chanting my name or screaming or cheering for me. Uh, the goosebumps were absolutely um, amazing, and then you know, then doing it in the, the eighty thousand, it's a, it's a little bit different. It's see the UFC and that have the atmosphere just fills. It's the atmosphere. The arena is thick with excitement. Is this this is the UFC amazing. you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, the yeah. UFC. The the K one is different. It's like it is overwhelming, and it is an amazing. Atmosphere, but it's not. It's, it's, it's so much. It's quieter. It's so much more it's, it's very different. It's almost it's like not, a karate tournament or something. Yeah, it's, it's like it, it was. It is again another one of those highlights. Walking out with that many people and just seeing the crowd, but it's not in the UFCs or that first time I fought here in Australia. The volume was. Unbelievable! It was deafening. Whereas you don't get that deafening volume, uh, or I didn't in that particular event. That that same feeling, maybe because it's the smaller arenas and there's more echo and the noise is really contained in. Maybe it was a little bit different compared to an eighty thousand open open air arena. Um, it's just yeah, they're all just different, and it's just that they all have something special that I can kind of take away and I'll always remember and they'll each one is not necessarily better or worse than the other it's just different and amazing in their own ways so one thing I wanted to ask you um, since starting since starting going on the carnivore um, diet like how what have you experienced from it and like what have you gained from it and also, can you tell us about like what it, when you're not fasting? What is like a full day of eating look like for you? Oh, um, so um, as I mentioned earlier, it started with uh, intermittent fasting, daily fast, looking at fast. I discovered a book called Ultimate Diet Secrets, um, which was uh, basically a it was a low carb encyclopedia written in. Um, story format. So it was kind of interesting. It was a guy's journey, how he went through the different dieting methodologies, why, what worked, what didn't work. Um, 
And he kind of goes through and eventually explains why the value of low carb. And that kind of got me into um, low carb dieting, low low carb nutrition, um, or a better way to put it is more highly nutritionally dense foods. Um, And then that led me naturally to keto, you know, because I started listening to a lot of podcasts, reading a lot of, um, doing a little bit of study and some, um, I've done some, Nutritional courses, I just haven't completed them because um, I wasn't really interested in them. It wasn't the qualification that I was kind of chasing. It was more the knowledge. Um, so I started looking at, uh, at keto and then keto community naturally led to kind of the carnivore community. And again, it was just more about finding nutrient-dense food, um, understanding the value of the different uh, uh, macronutrients, Understanding that carbohydrates and fats are both different sources and forms of energy, um, and how the body works with them, the best way to optimize towards, um, using it properly. Understanding that protein is your building block for strength, recovery, uh, your organs. And that's why I'm very, uh, I think carnivore is very strong because it has a lot of the foods, um, such as protein, collagens, all sorts of stuff which are very important for body, body, body repair, body growth, muscular growth, um, in a very highly absorbable, nutritionally available form. You know, we're designed to digest, break down amino acids and you want amino acids that have all the, the, the correct, um, individual aminos that we need. Uh, the problem with a lot of the plant-based stuff is they can, be missing some of the important stuff, which aren't necessarily what we call essential, um, but our body doesn't produce it in quantities that are suitable, particularly for those in um, high high impact and uh, um, high energy kind of um, activities. So um, I found found the carnivore diet was just a great way to kind of optimize um, diet. It just makes it very easy. There's not a lot of um, I don't have to, the problem with some of the plant-based stuff is you have to mix different types of foods to ensure you're getting a, a good, you know, you, I know you can still achieve a lot of it with plant-based diets, but as I you know, there's a lot of planning and working out. You've got to ensure you've got the, the right macros and the right um, forms of food. You have to kind of mix and match different foods. Whereas with um, carnivore, it's a little bit more simple. You kind of eat meat, fish, and eggs. Um, if you handle dairy, supplement with a little bit with the dairy. If you don't handle dairy, um, leave it out. And then obviously there are different levels of carnivore from those guys that go full on, nothing but meat. And then those that, um, do animal products such as beef, lamb, chicken, along with fish, eggs and dairy. And then, um, you can add a little bit of, um, for those people that go about 90% carnivore and about 10% of um, other plant food, healthy whole food. Again, I always recommend healthy, healthy whole food. Stay away from um, processed food and, and that sort of stuff. If, you, if you're getting most of your diet from whole food, you're probably not going to have a lot, uh, a lot to worry about. Um, uh, in regards to the diet, it's fairly simple. Um, most days, it's um, pretty much just a. Uh, about, you know, somewhere between around a 750-gram steak, whether it's a, a ribeye, Scotch fillet, a New York steak, 
Um, that's pretty much mostly what I have days, and then I'll kind of supplement with egg or um, cheese, usually. Oh, just give me a second. Uh, butter sauce or something. And then um, for dessert, I might have some cream or something like that. Some days, though I don't have as much anymore, I'll have coffee um, or something like that. So I kind of, I don't have a problem with coffee. I used to have coffee every day, but lately I just haven't. Needed like I used to awesome. have the coffee. For, used to have the coffee for the you know just to, to keeping your energy up. But I found going carnivore, I just kind of stopped craving it. It's not that I don't you know I'll still have it if I feel like a coffee I'll make myself. But nowadays it's generally a black coffee, um, a little bit of sweetener or something just to take the, the edge off. Um, yeah, it's fairly simple. I, as I said, most days I, I'll kind of um, fast. I usually just eat the meal at the end of the day. If I'm feeling hungry during the day, I might grab some chicken or something like that or make myself an omelette or some scrambled eggs or I might grab um, a camembert cheese wheel from the fridge and munch on that. Um, I used to you know, keep jerky on hand if I, for snacking, but something I found with the carnivore is uh, I don't snack anymore. I don't feel the need to snack. I, I tend to feel pretty happy with just having meals when I need them. Um, do you do you still um, do you still take supplements like NAD and and do and what do you think yeah. about all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. So I, I do have um, a range of. Um, Various anti again that's part of my anti aging protocol. Um, so it's NMN, NR. Are you taking um, that stuff? Yeah, yeah, I'm taking uh, NMN, NR, uh, niacin, uh, melatonin, um, quercetin, uh, berberine, um, uh, resveratrol, and I take a few other things for improving um, blood quality, um, such as serapeptase. Um, I also have um, thermidine, um and uh, a blackcurrant oil. So a couple of things. Just black to, seed oil? Is that is that? What, well, it's similar. Blackcurrant oil is very okay. similar to black seed oil. I think it's uh, CLAs or whatever it is uh, that it provides for you know increase, improving your um, uh, platelets and um, red blood cells, and again. For improving oxygen car- carrying capacity again, which goes with my hyper. Before lockdown, I was doing my hyperbaric oxygen about three or four times a week uh, at the gym for myself. Um, my red light therapy, my saunas on weekends, and ice baths. So. I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't handle the NR and the NMN. It, it, it was too stimulating for me. Well, then you want to stay away from niacin because that gives you. Um, Makes you go all itchy, turn red. I like that. The nice and yeah, I love my nice and flush. But it's yeah. also um, since we haven't brought it up, it is um, a prophylactic for dealing with COVID. So niacin and um, melatonin, about one gram of niacin, about ten milligrams of melatonin taken daily is a, is a good um, prophylactic to help with uh, if you do get a. Um, COVID infection along another good protocol is quercetin with zinc. Um, so quercetin works similarly to hydroxychloroquine or um, ivermectin. It's a good way of getting zinc into the cells to help uh, reduce inflammation uh, caused by 
the virus. So, you know, I do a, a lot of things, which it's kind of interesting that a lot of the stuff that I do for general health and anti-aging actually directly correlate to um, improving your outcomes versus, say, an infection like COVID. Because um, I've been looking at some of the... Um, I'll be honest, some of the stuff is even beyond me. It's some of the pretty in-depth stuff that they're looking at, the fact that um, COVID may prevent the breakdown of senescent cells, um, which then accumulate in the body, which causes kind of a backlog of damaged cells in the body. Um, so doing things like anti-aging protocols will help you with dealing with that kind of um, stress that the body gets under. So it's almost like that COVID, um, or sorry, not the entire, but part of the infection, because obviously it has different parts. Part of it is inflammation. Part of it is the spike protein, which damages your endothelium. Um, but part of it also seems to be that it causes a backlog in, it's almost like reverse anti-aging. So it actually causes an increase in aging-related um, injury so this is why you see a lot of people with comorbidities suffering a lot more and a lot faster um, than you would if you didn't have the comorbidities. And again, because there seems to be multiple me uh, mechanisms of action behind the COVID virus. Um, and as I mentioned, spike proteins damaging endothelium, which creates blood clots and the like. Then you have um, um, the uh, damaged or the the accumulation of senescent cells and apoptosis in the body, so damaged cells. Um, it's almost kind like of cancer, <laughs> sort of similar, except they replicate. Um, yeah. Cancer is kind of is a, is a cell which breaks down and then becomes, begins to multiply and damaging other cells. So it's kind of like, mm, not quite, but um, kind of works differently, yeah. But, yeah, the idea of damaged cells accumulating, I guess, could be compared to the kind of like cancer. Um, but also, and obviously, a, a lot of the inflammation and um, impaired immunity, that's why high levels of vitamin D have been shown to be beneficial. Naturally, people with high levels of vitamin D tend to be outdoors, have more activity, more likely to uh, indulge in activities such as saunas, ice baths, exercise. So they're more likely to have the natural... Um, Increased telomere length and stuff like that. So natural, natural anti-aging um, uh, habits in the body, which kind of help deal with that kind of infection. Which is, as I said, the reverse. You know, COVID creates inflammation. It damages your uh, blood supply. It impairs your ability to absorb oxygen. It um, builds up damaged cells. So um, Again, this is one of the reasons I found uh, the topic so interesting is because of its it's almost direct correlation to health and wellness. It's almost mm. like it is anti-health and wellness. Like COVID is the anti-health and wellness disease. So why? So I think we need to open up these gyms and and get people healthier, or at least maybe we should tell people. Right? Like when I turn on the news, for example, I don't hear by Channel Seven, Channel Nine. I don't hear, "Hey guys, make sure you get an hour of exercise in, eight hours sleep." get your zinc and vitamin D. I don't hear that sort of stuff. So, why why aren't we being told things like this? Because as far as I know, exercise and wellness is like one of those things that's probably going to stop you from going to hospital. 
Well, that's, yeah, I absolutely agree. This is one of the things. They're two of the most common and highest comorbidities is obesity and vitamin D deficiency, both caused by being stuck indoors, not exercising, not getting outside. So it's almost like lockdowns are creating a state which is going to naturally make you more likely to suffer a severe outcome from a COVID infection. It's just insanity, locking people indoors, restricting exercise, restricting exposure to sun, putting them into a situation where they're under artificial light instead of natural light in front of a TV, eating unhealthily. Um, they're going to put on weight. Their vitamin D levels are going to tank. Their likely glucose levels are going to go up. Uh, and these are all the conditions which are associated with high COVID mortality, whereas all the conditions which make sense, the reverse, so if you exercise, get plenty of sun, you have a good diet, you're one of those people that become asymptomatic, probably don't even notice it, um, probably wouldn't even be carrying a high enough viral load to even spread it um, because your body's able to kind of fight off. Most of the time, you'll even fight off the infection with your T-cells without ever getting to the point of activating any sort of antibodies. Um, so it's almost like we're being put into lockdowns, which is going to increase your chance of severe outcome to protect us from getting a severe outcome. And it's, it's, it really, it's, it's not health advice. You know, it's, it's population control advice. They've all, they've taken the health out of health advice. This is the way I see it. If it was about health advice, they would be saying, look, stay home. I understand that. You know, I don't agree lockdowns work. I actually think they actually cause more harm than not. But if there was true health advice and they believe lockdowns help, they would be saying stay home, exercise, eat whole foods, get out into the sun every day, make sure you're supplementing with vitamin D, make sure you're getting zinc, um, make sure you're doing healthy behaviors. But like you said, they're not. They're just saying don't talk to people, stay at home, don't talk to anyone, lock yourself out, don't only go out for one hour a day. Um, and again, a big part of our physical health is actually linked to our psychological health. It's actually being shown that poor psychological health leads to poor physical health. So when you lose contact with people and your social circle, you're not um, making intellectual and psychological contact in person. It's like as much as they say, you know, use your Skype or your Zoom call or your Apple card, whatever, it's not the same. We're, we're designed to look, to interact with people in person. We're designed to share bacteria, um, you know, our health, our skin health. We want to be outside. We want to be in the dirt. Um, there are studies that show your microbiome is actually more affected by what you do physically by being in the dirt, digging around than the food you eat. Like, You've got people with polar opposite diets from vegan to carnivore who both have very healthy microbiomes. So if we've got polar opposites in diets and yet they've both got healthy microbiomes, then the common factor isn't the diet, is it? So what is the common factor? And if you look at those people with the healthy microbiomes, it's the activities they do, not the food they eat that is in common. These are the people that get outside, go for walk, get in the sun, walk in the grass with bare feet, dig in the dirt, exercise regularly. That has a greater effect on your microbiome than the actual food you eat. Obviously, if you eat shitty 
processed food, you're going to have a crap microbiome. But if you're eating healthy whole foods, it shouldn't matter whether it's plant-based or animal-based, you should still have a very diverse microbiome in there. So, again, it just comes back to the health advice we're getting isn't about health because we're not getting health advice. We're not getting we're it. Told, no, we've just been told stay at home, get a vaccine to do the job that your body should be doing. If, you, if we were all healthy, if everyone didn't have comorbidities, this virus would likely be less than a flu. Because when you look at all the, the people, that even today's press conference, I, was, I listen to it every day. There was 11 people that died. I try, I try not to listen to it. I turn it off when it comes on. Well, I'm a, I'm a, a glutton for information. I like to know what's going on. I only again, get- I, I, have, I have a – sorry, you were going to say? I was going to say I only get my news from InfoWars now with Alex Jones. We love Alex as well. <laughs> I do listen to him. I like to, I like to, I like a balanced view. I like to get it from both sides um, to make sure I'm not getting um, cognitive bias. I am informed. Uh, I'm getting as balanced a view as possible, um, and then just basically um, doing critical thinking and kind of trying to make my own decisions. And again, this is what it should be about. It should be about getting all the information. Applying critical support and each individual making their own decision. We shouldn't be coerced into any decision. We shouldn't have to be forced into making someone else's decision for us. And I get this is one of my biggest concerns uh, with what's going on. As, as I said, they're coercing people into getting a vaccine. They're not talking about health. Health does not come up. Even when they're double vaccinated, they're not talking about health. They're not saying you need to exercise. They're not saying you need to eat, eat well. They're just saying, Oh, well, once we're all double vaccinated, we're going to see more vaccinated people in the hospital because viruses um, get people and nothing's 100% effective. And it's like, well, no, that's true. But if it improves your health, then you're going to improve your likely outcome. Whether you're vaccinated or not vaccinated, improving your health is going to help you in the long run. Well, Elvis, um, obviously, you know, something's going on that's not right. And I don't know if you saw like a, a week ago, Clive Palmer came out and had something to say about Gladys. I don't know if you heard that. Yeah, I've heard of you heard that? Gladys. Was, um, Ulterior motive. And in bed with um, pharmaceuticals and... Big Pharma. Which, big Pharma. Which is probably true. Um, but look, regardless of what's happening with the government and the vaccines and all that sort of thing, like yeah, if, you've, if you've been... Quick, quickly on that point, I actually just read an article, uh, uh, a document from the government which actually shows that the state governments are being paid, I have to, I can't remember exactly, something like between 28 to $32 per person that is vaccinated. So they're getting a stipend to the state government from the, no, so no wonder they're pushing to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Because think about it, every time someone gets a vaccine, they, they're making, you know, let's say on average $30 a person. If you can get eight people um, vaccinated, you're getting like after eight million people vaccinated, you're getting like two hundred and forty million dollars. Then if you get them to do it twice, then you're getting you know four hundred and eighty million. And then if you get booster shots, I mean the sort of money that's going to be flowing back through to the state governments and stuff like that, you know, it makes you wonder. Like, and you've got to look at it. So the clients. states getting paid? Yes, the states are getting paid for each person that's the, by the federal government. I want to know where the Government, where the federal government is getting, we're paying for it. But so but what about these disaster payments? 
that we're getting the disaster payments, right? I, I mean, I'm not yeah. getting them. I'm just saying. I know a lot of people are getting um, money. Yeah, and- I look, I, I'll admit I am. I, I couldn't survive without it. Like they, they shut down my business. They took away all my income. They. they I think like, I, I think I, Uber Eats is winning here. I think yeah, I wish I, I wish I, I wish I invested in Uber in Uber. Maybe oh, Uber Eats Uber, is behind this. Yeah. Uber, um, Amazon, um, or, you know, Woolworths Online, Coles Online, they're the ones that are winning. Dan Murphy's. I went to, I went to my shopping center <laughs> the today. Bottle shops. <laughs> bottle shops are essential, killing it. Essential service. How, how the hell is that essential? It's essential. Yeah. Believe, just trust me, I'm the government. Yeah, yeah. I wish I'd invested in eBay. They must be selling it. Mm. What, um, uh, what have you guys had to deal with? Uh, as a gym, because like, look, let's be honest. Like, the fitness industry as an industry, they're not, they're not really like. It's really hard to get everyone together and be like, yeah, we're not gonna, we're not gonna stand for this. It's not like the construction industry or or anything like that. Those mad dogs in yeah. Melbourne. So I'm sure you're under a lot of pressure. And um, from what I've heard, a lot of people in the fitness industry and a lot of gyms, they're getting vaccinated and they're they're running with the whole. Mo of you need to be vaccinated to enter. I, I don't. I don't want to know what you're going to do. I just want to know how you're dealing with that sort of pressure. Well, look, um, and are you well, getting it from the government? Well, no, we're not. We haven't got anything from the government yet. Obviously, we are getting it from um, the association. Like the if we're, if we're um, belonging to an, uh, a larger body, they're talking about it. They're saying, "Look, this is what the government wants. This is what you should probably do. You should probably start doing it now." Is and that Fitness Australia, or is that something else? No, no. Uh, this is just through the, my franchise. Okay. At the moment, we haven't got anything from Fitness Australia. Right, 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 right. Again, they're not. They're not at this stage. They're not forcing anyone to do anything. But they're saying, "Look, this is what the government's going to do. If you want to be get on board, you need to do this. You need to call your staff." And um, and like. I'm at this stage. I'm like, I'm playing it by ear. I'm waiting to see what the actual mandates are, what the actual laws are. Again, I have no intention of breaking the law, but I want to work within the law. But I also do not want to discriminate. I don't think discrimination in any form is good. Um, whether it's because of race, because of whether it's sex, religion, or vaccination status. Um, regardless, it's a discrimination. Most people don't realize New South Wales actually has uh, and infectious disease anti-discrimination act. Well, we just so had um, uh, we just had some. Have you seen the uh, solicitor Samir Banger on Instagram? Yes, I'm, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So his uh, his whole his whole thing is discrimination law, and he's been looking into that sort of stuff. Really interesting shit. Um, there's a case going on now, um, in court about on on the state about these laws. There's several cases. I know there's several yeah. cases in the high court. Um, I know there's the paramedics, I think possibly teachers. There was a police officer, but they've recently withdrawn. And I think there's one which is a general one against the actual um, Brad Hazard and Kerry Chant on the general um, implementation of the restrictions and stuff. So I'm keeping, I'm keeping an eye on There was actually a hearing... Um, today they tried, I think they tried to subpoena, um, um, Gladys, but the judge said, look, in the end it comes down to Brad, so you don't need to give what him on the subpoena thing. Because, um, Gladys actually stated on the Today Show that, um, state regulations do not allow 
um, us, them to mandate vaccination. The federal government has stated that the constitution does not allow them to mandate vaccination. So what it looks like they're trying to do is push the responsibility um, onto the businesses and requiring them to mandate um, vaccination. Because which is discriminatory. Does, which is discriminatory. Yeah. But what it does is they put their laws in place or their mandates, but they don't mandate, they just say, your business can't allow vaccinated people in. So now it's up to you to make a a discriminative policy to cover their law. So they're not saying you have to do it, but they're saying you can't operate within this framework. So what happens is the company then has to say, well, if you want to work, you've got to be vaccinated. So what that now does, it puts all the legal onus on the businesses. So now if someone gets vaccinated and gets injured as a result of it, they sue the business. They can't sue the state. That's right. If someone doesn't want to go, is refused entrance and they're discriminated on, they sue the business. They don't sue the state. So now all the um, responsibility goes to the business. So the federal government wipes its hands of it. The state government wipes its hands of it. And then they leave it to the individual businesses. And the pharmaceutical companies, they have no liability. The federal government has no liability. The state government has no liability. Now they're pushing the liability onto the businesses. Businesses they've shut down and destroyed over the last couple of months who have not been able to operate to make an income who are struggling, who will do whatever they can to get to open. So now they get put into a position where when they do open up, they now become liable for the issues that may arrive that everyone else above them who's forcing them to do it aren't liable. And it's ridiculous. It's just you can see the writings on the wall. Their goal is to push the liability as far down the chain so they can say, hey, we didn't mandate it. You did your responsibility. Perfect example of this was Scott Morrison is pushing everyone to get vaccinated, get vaccinated, get vaccinated, get vaccinated. When someone asked him, do you feel bad for the people who've died or have suffered an adverse reaction because of the vaccine, he's like, no, it's their responsibility to make an informed decision and talk to their doctor. got nothing to me, do with me, bad luck. Did he actually say that? He actually well, said, publicly. I've, got on, I've got it on video. That's disgusting. Can, can you send it to us after this? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so I'll, um, I'm I'll, sure it's on your Twitter I'll, or something. Or no, your, it's, it's, I, I download a lot of footage and share it. And that in sort of in stuff. case it gets striped or something. Yeah, and I've got, a, I've got like a Telegram channel and stuff like well, that. Well, Elvis, I think um, – sorry, James, I'll let you go. So, yeah, definitely I totally agree with everything you were saying because um, I think it's wild that not a lot of people know that vaccine companies um, are given indemnity when they bring their vaccines into the country, which is really weird. And one thing I also only discovered recently, because the law only came out like one or two months ago, that because there's no indemnity around injuries from vaccine, they've now, like it came out in June or July, that if you mandate a vaccine as a company, if one of your workers gets injured from the vaccine, you're liable for the rest of their living life. Yes, and, and it's not it's not covered by insurance. And no one, no, the funny thing is, like, I reckon the, you're familiar with the guy, the SPC guy? Uh, no. Oh, the SPC, like oh. the fruit company. He's like, everyone's going to get the vaccine, all my workers. <laughs> I wonder if he knows that, like, oh, actually, I think it's New South Wales state law. I don't know if it's federal, but 
um, it's yeah, they're saying that if you mandate it for your workers, you're liable. Like, and I don't think yeah. many people know that. No, I, I don't think they do. This is what I'm saying. That's what the government's doing. It's trying to push it down to the business so they can wipe their hands off it. And so the liability that they can't pass on to the manufacturer, they're passing on to the businesses to mandate it. And as you said, they don't realize that. My understanding is it won't be covered by workers' compensation. The insurance companies won't cover it. So it becomes the company's own responsibility to, to directly be liable for any expenses. And like you said, it could be for the lifetime of the person if they're able to um, get the claim. So look, guys, look after yourselves, um, especially if you're a small business. Um, realize what you're getting into and what it means for you and your customers and Look, at the end of the day, um, you know, listen to healthy people, listen to people that have been around a long time, uh, listen to people that are studying and, and taking matters into their own hands. Um, don't just blindly go into things because you could up, end up in a terrible situation and, you know, we don't want businesses closing down and people getting injured and all that sort of stuff would be terrible. Look, absolutely. I've got to say is once things open up, make sure you support the small businesses. I try and do as much shopping in my local stops. I know they're a little bit more expensive than the supermarkets. You know, but these guys are struggling. Um, and they're going to be struggling once we reopen. So please support your local community. Um, and whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, it doesn't matter. Where we are all Australians. Make sure you get out every day to sun exposure. Make sure you eat healthy whole foods for the majority of your diet. Obviously, if you want to have special meals and stuff like that, go for it. But don't overindulge in it. Healthy whole foods. Make sure you exercise. Try and get exercise a couple of times a week. Make sure you, you socialize with your with your friends and family. Make sure you're always staying physically, mentally, and socially active so you can be as healthy as possible. So whether it's COVID or the flu or any other illness, you have the physical tool, physical and mental tool to deal with it to come out on the um, the right side of it. Um, you know, I'm in the in the martial arts. I, it's about helping people by improving their confidence, by improving their health and fitness, and uh, and that's really what I want to get across. You know, it's no one but you is responsible for your body, your health, your life. If you don't look after your body, this is your house. Where are you going to live? This is, your body is your house. This is where you live. If you want to live a long, fruitful, productive life, look after yourself. No one else will. It doesn't matter what the law says or what anyone does. In the end, the only person responsible for you is you. You know, the only exception is, is obviously kids, you know, parents. We are also responsible for our children until they get to an age where they can become responsible for themselves. But self-responsibility um, if you don't take your health on board as a priority, then, um, as they say, if you're not willing to pay for health now, you'll pay for illness later. Thank you so much for your time, Elvis. Do you want to tell us about your gyms and where they are? Sure. Look, again, thank you very much uh, for the chat. It's been a, a very high-octane octane couple of hours. I hope everyone uh, enjoyed it. Um, hope I hope you got hope you had enough water in there, Elvis. Oh, I'm out of the corner now. I'd be dead if I was still in there now. Yeah. Um, I have King's Academy of Martial Arts. As I said, it's probably the first super gym. It's the only gym that has boxing, kickboxing, wrestling, um, mixed martial arts, um, yoga, jiu-jitsu, everything under one house. We have the largest professional mat space. 
um, three, uh, about 360 square metres with no poles or anything in there, big open space. We have beginner, intermediate, advanced classes. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've got a gym, cage, ring, sauna, hyperbaric, oxygen chamber, uh, members area. We've got video game upstairs for our members, um, a small old table with those um, old school games on it. Oh, have you got a PS5 yeah, there? So, um, so, you know, it's about creating a community. We have a great community. It's not just about training. It's about training, socialising, recovery. So if you're in the Liverpool area, make sure to pop down to King's Academy. I've just recently opened up UFC Gym MacArthur Square and the MacArthur Square Shopping Centre um, in Campbelltown. Again, I'm trying to build that same sort of culture in the UFC Gym. I'm the head of UFC Gyms Australia uh, BJJ program, and then I plan to be running the program from MacArthur Square. Uh, it's a fantastic gym. Again, it's the first UFC gym that actually has a sauna in it. Um, we've got, you know, black belts teaching the jiu-jitsu. We've got some great classes, our daily ultimate training, fantastic gym equipment in there, great location in the shopping center, food court, so you can go get food, go get shopping, and then finish off with the workout before you go home. So if you're in the Campbelltown area, make sure uh, uh, pop into into that one. So hopefully, you know, we'll see you guys in there. Oh, I can't wait. Look after your health. Look after your friends and family. Um, that's the main thing that's really going to make a difference for you. Look after you and those around you. Be happy. And always remember, it's good to be the king. Thanks, Elvis. Thanks, man. See you later. Okay, thank you.